soy sauce and miso. I never thought I'd start a talk that will lead us towards living for Jesus with these four words, but here we are and here we go. A few years ago, I watched a Netflix documentary called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. It's a four episode film that follows chef Semin Nosrat, who she travels around the world and she reveals how these four elements are essential to really good cooking. In the second episode, Salt, she heads to Japan and visits a miso maker and a soy sauce producer. Simple sounding condiments, but that mesmerizing episode, it left me with more questions than answers, and here's why. The miso maker took a couple of days to prepare the miso paste, kind of an arduous multi-day process, but that part, it made sense to me. She steamed the soybeans and blended the beans and salted and mixed the soybean paste and, and then transferred the soybean paste into a container. And all normal, but, but here's where it gets wild. After putting it into a container, she let this soybean paste ferment in what looked like uh, an old shed for three years. Essentially, you let this stuff age for as long as you can wait, but you do this because the flavor, it improves over longer periods of time. So I watched that and I thought to myself, like, who in my world would ever think to prepare food like that? It would be like me making a sandwich, mashing it up, and then leaving it in a jar in an outdoor shed with the intention of eating it years later. Well, next, Chef Samin, she visits a, a Japanese soy sauce producer whose methods are one of a kind. After a long harvesting and preparation process, their soy sauce mixture, it's, it's aged in these handmade centuries-old cedar barrels, aging that can easily exceed four years before it's ready. And again, who figured that out? Well, well, this expensive soy sauce, it's said to taste just perfect. A taste that would have never been discovered if these patiently hardworking individuals hadn't gone through the process of allowing these elements to fully marinate and mature. What, what caught my attention is the reality that, that these processes of making miso and soy sauce are centuries old, they're ancient, and again, I found myself gripped by questions like, how do you come up with these methods of preparation? I mean, what frame of mind causes you to think about food like that? What, what kind of lifestyle produces the desire to, to wait to eat for that long? I was processing these thoughts with a friend of mine and I was frustrated that I, I might never discover that world of things that can only be known through years of preparation, and then it hit me. Hundreds of years ago, when our ancestors were raising their livestock from newborn to fully mature or farming their slow-growing crops for survival, all of their lived experiences were informed by periods of months, seasons, and, and years of preparing. Like us, they lived lives proportionate to their experience of it, but unlike us, their timeframes of, of witnessing things develop, they were so much longer. 
I mean, my timeframes are, are generally connected to the expectations of, of next day or same day, microwaved, on-demand delivery, a, a time frame which quite often it produces results that are far less mature, less flavorful, less substantive. Their timeframes were much longer, which produced the discovery of a, a richness and a beauty that their meals were all the better for. And so in their brief moments of sharing a meal, they were enjoying the depth of substance that can only be developed over days, months, and years of working through the consistent process of maturation. And so with all of that in mind, I want you to answer this. It's one of life's greatest gifts. It gets better with time and can be shared in an instant. What is it? And I'll give you a hint, it's not a meal. I'd argue that it's even more necessary than that. It's the spiritual practice of hospitality. What we share in the moment we open our doors is prepared well before. What we have to offer, it can be meaningful or it can be shallow. The substance of what we bring to these moments is, is up to us. Now, I realize that if you're naturally introverted, like me, I mean, the things associated with a word like hospitality, it reflexively makes you gag. But I also know that the, the psychological, the physical, and the spiritual attrition that stems from disconnection, it's far more damaging in the long run. According to a recent Gallup poll, post-pandemic, an estimated 44 million American adults are currently experiencing significant loneliness. The practice of hospitality is the counter to the endemic of loneliness. It's, it's one of the key ingredients that fully oxygenates our lives. So, so all of us, you and I, are responsible for developing the spiritual practice of hospitality daily. Each of us held accountable for becoming a hospitable person of substance, the kind of person that enters into each brief window of hospitality carrying the thoughtfully prepared ingredients of grace and kindness, selflessness, and love. So once again, we're leaning into our trellis metaphor, considering the spiritual practice as, as part of the structure that provides the support that we need to strengthen our connection to Jesus and to one another. And so as we consider this spiritual practice of hospitality, let's first turn to Leviticus 23, 22. Starting with verse 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. The first time I read through this command, I thought, yeah, sure, I mean, that makes sense. And then I sat and thought more about the whole process. Starting in verse 22, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap 
to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. And I realized why this needed to be a command. Have you ever looked at your pay stub and noticed how much is taken out in taxes? I mean, I mean, you worked hard for it, but without your permission, part of it just magically disappears and you're supposed to be absolutely okay with it. Or if you fish like me, have you ever calculated how much money you've lost doing the work to catch fish? All anglers agree, financial ignorance is best. So when I read a passage like this, I realize that the practice of hospitality, it's asymmetrical. Giving without the balanced expectation of receiving anything in return. And this is so important to know up front. When God says, when you reap the harvest of your land, there is so much embedded in that statement. For those people, that, that harvest, it represented a minimum of 90 days of really hard work, 90 days of work in the hot sun, preparing the soil and planting the seeds and watering the ground and keeping the rodents and pass away, giving time and giving energy, doing whatever it takes to produce a good crop on their land. And you can imagine how all of that difficult work could lead to the, the mind problem that Pastor Steve preached about earlier, our tendency to, to hold on to the things that we produce too tightly. After all, they did the work. But here God's saying, you do the 90 days of hard work so that as people pass through your land, the poor and the foreigner, they can receive something of substance, something good, something produced by the sweat of your brow, something that will give them life. And on top of all of that, I want you to expect absolutely nothing in return. Don't, don't play the typical game of, well, I worked hard to produce this, and so you can have it if you pay for it, or if it feels to me like an even exchange, or if I decide that you're deserving. No, no, the full extent of hospitality, it's asymmetrical. We work hard, we produce, and we give. God's standard, it, it pushes us to our edges. God knew that his people would gladly give to friends and family and stop there. So, so he commanded something in the Old Testament that moved them beyond what was comfortable. He said, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner residing among you. Essentially, work hard every day and diligently to produce something life-giving and then willingly open your life to give the vulnerable stranger among you something good, something carefully prepared regardless of what they have to offer in return. Now you might be saying, John, 99.9% .9 of us don't have land that people can glean from. Besides, nobody does that. And you're right, but we have more than that. More than land, we've been given a life capable of producing good things. 
In the New Testament, Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable about a farmer who goes out to sow his seed. And the challenge in this parable is to do the work of developing the space of our heart, this ground, the soil of our heart in such a way that we produce an abundant crop, something good from our lives and not just for ourselves, but for the benefit of those in our neighborhoods, those in our our communities. So back to Leviticus 23, 22. And do not reap to the very edges of your field, the edges of your land, Listen, your entire life is intended to produce a harvest, something thoughtfully, something carefully prepared, something good that is accessible to those among us. And this includes all of us. At every one of those levels of hospitality that Pastor Chris mentioned in his talk, whether you're entering into someone else's home like Jesus often did, or hosting your church or community, or welcoming in the vulnerable stranger into your space, in all of these circumstances, the common denominator is you. What what you bring, the substance of your life that you've prepared for others to glean from, Your readiness for those moments, it highlights the necessity of this spiritual practice. Growing up, my brother and sister and I, we had friends who used to come over to our house and they would hang out with us for a moment and then they'd wander over to chat with our parents to ask life advice and to talk about Jesus. And as a teenager, I always thought it was strange, but looking back now, I realize that the way that my parents had prepared their lives, it gave them a depth of substance that our friends, they just craved to encounter. It was always more than them just coming over to hang out. I mean, my parents were prepared for those moments. And so what does it look like for us to be prepared for these moments? Well, when I was 18, I had a job at this mom and pop shop called Priceless Drug Stores. I started there stocking shelves and working the cash registers, but, but I would watch these middle-aged floor managers who, they, they wore these, these butt-up shirts and ties and slacks and dress shoes, and it was unlike the rest of us. We just wore regular clothes, and I thought to myself, you know what, I could do what they do. I could do their job. They had these master keys and they would use them to void all of our mistakes at the register. They'd call cashiers up to the front when the customers were piling up. They'd get us going on tasks like restocking the shelves. They'd solve every problem. And again, I thought to myself, I enjoy telling people what to do. I like responsibility. I can solve problems. I should be a floor manager. So I went up to the store manager, Ken, and I told him that I wanted to be a floor manager. And he said, listen, we don't have anything right now, but just shadow the floor managers. And and when I think you're ready, you and I can talk about it. So that's what I did. I shadowed them for weeks. So a few weeks went by and I asked him if he thought I was ready for the job. And he said, no, not yet. And then a few more days passed and I got the same response. And then another day and he said, you know what? I think you're ready. When do you want to start? So I told him I I could start today, but he reminded me that that there's a dress code for floor managers. 
I said, I know. Don't worry, I'll be right back. What he didn't know was that the same day that he told me this position was even a possibility, I went home and I, I put a dress shirt and a tie and slacks and dress shoes in my car. I wanted to be ready the very moment the opportunity came. So I went out to my car and I changed into the dress shirt, tie, slacks, and dress shoes that I had prepared and then came back in ready to go. The outfit that I wore as I walked through the door was prepared well before, and, and hospitality is exactly like that. What we share, you and I share, the moment that we open our door is prepared well before. So here's where we get really practical with this spiritual practice of hospitality. And, and by spiritual practice, I mean the act of doing something in the material to elevate the condition of the immaterial, the condition of the soul. And what I hope to do is demystify the illusion of complexity with hospitality. So these next three things might not get a yes and amen or a praise God, but they are important for growing in this spiritual practice. The first thing, act like someone is coming over. You know that thing that we do when someone's actually coming over in the next few hours where we f we're, we're furiously cleaning our houses and we're yelling at our kids to clean their rooms and they're just confused, wondering why there's all this aggressive Marie Kondo energy coming from us? Or how about when you're picking someone up and your car is in mess and so now you're rushing to get it cleaned at the gas station on the way over? Those are the moments where we can tangibly feel the deficit of what could be. Listen, the spiritual practice is to keep it clean, even if no one is coming over. You'll never hear that preached in a sermon. It's, it's repetitive, it's boring, it's non-glamorous, but, but it's a substance-producing discipline. And I get it, it's easier said than done, but what will happen is that when people actually do come over, either just you or the combo of you and your family won't be so stressed out, all windblown from taking on an oversized task of tidying everything up in one moment. And trust me, everyone feels that frantic energy. And there's this mutual benefit. On the one hand, those that you host will enjoy the experience, and on the other hand, you yourself will enjoy your car and your house far more if it's clean. When we adopt that sense of responsibility for preparing our spaces, I believe God will meet us in our preparation, providing opportunities for us to show thoughtful hospitality to others, the kind of hospitality that, that he provided for Adam and Eve in the garden. This space that was full of beauty and sustenance and peace prepared with care for them. In Genesis 2, 15, the Lord God then took the man and settled him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and care for it. They were tasked with maintaining their space. Now, now we don't have the responsibility of caring for that garden, but we're still responsible for our spaces. The task is the same. 
our physical space is benefiting if we act as if someone is coming over. But it goes deeper than that. It goes deeper than just our physical space. We practice getting in the habit of preparing our mental space, whether you have a guest or not. So what does it mean to prepare our minds? Preparing your mind, it can be as simple as, as meditating on inspiring stories of hospitality, stories that counter the individualistic ideals that are elevated in society. I find it interesting that in every other arena of life, even trivial places, the expectation is that we mentally prepare. I mean, as a football coach of 10-year-olds, I have parents and athletes who assume that I'm studying, who expect that I come ready, that I meditate on the game plan, that I mentally prepare. Now, I do prepare days before our games. I've even woken up in the middle of the night to drop plays. And I'll tell you what, it translates directly into the quality of our experience on game day. But that's just a game. How much more important is it that I prepare my mind for the practice of something essential like hospitality? By, by meditating on stories of hospitality, stories in scripture that, that prepare us, that inspire us, that equip us towards acts of hospitality, stories like what we find in the Old Testament in Genesis 1, and God hosting Adam and Eve, or Genesis 12, 14, 18, and 19, the story of Abraham and the proper and improper way to host a stranger, or the stories that we read in 1 Kings 17 and 18, Elijah receiving the hospitality of a widow of Zaphirath. Or when we push things forward in the New Testament, Luke 14, 1, where Jesus, he stays with Pharisees, or Luke 19, 5 through 10, where Jesus, he says that hospitality to strangers is the way that we minister to him. Or the story that we read in Acts 2, where the early followers of Jesus, they opened their homes to one another and shared everything that they had in common. I'd argue that, that the meta-narrative of scripture is hospitality, all of it instructive and inspiring. And add to these stories, our lived experience, our lived story, the stories that are being shared as we experience things like neighborhood church across many of our campuses. We prepare our minds by meditating on these things. Recently, my family and I were hosted by a couple who thought of everything. From a lit campfire when we arrived to an apple pie in the oven to a gift basket for everyone in my family of six. It was overwhelming and my wife and I, we just kept looking at each other and saying, oh my goodness, I cannot believe they did that. It was more than enough that they opened up their beautiful cabin to us, but they were just so thoughtful preparing this beautiful space for us. And you can feel it when someone was prepared to host you. This, this ministry of hospitality, it leaves you feeling seen and thought of, known. There, there's a depth to those experiences that are a, a direct result of habitually and thoughtfully preparing your mind and your space. So act like someone's coming over 
And secondly, the second thing, attend to one thing. David prayed, one thing I ask of the Lord. This is what I seek in Psalms 27.4. Paul writes, this one thing I do in Philippians 3.13. Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me in John 6.38. This one thing, like anything, when you're aimed in one direction, you're simultaneously aimed away from another. You can't go left and right at the same time. The faithfulness of your yes, it sets the boundaries of your no. With, with this spiritual practice of hospitality, the aim is to develop spaces in our lives that are free from clutter, free from sideways, wasted, contradicting energy. And so learning to attend to our one thing, it requires that we evaluate whether we're living intentionally enough to, to carve out actual space for the pace of hospitality. Hospitality, it requires a protected allocation of time, time that's quickly swallowed up by the multitude of things that demand our attention. And so the question is, how do we find our moments to just focus on our one thing. So here's a practical nerdy task that involves your calendar. Listen, if we fail to plan, we plan to fail. So look at your calendars over the next three months and do this really simple thing, color code it, using just two colors. One that signifies hot or busy times and another that signifies cool or spacious moments in your life, moments that you have available to attend to this one thing. The practice of hospitality. Just two colors can help you decide your yes and determine what you'll say no to. What you might find is that, that your calendar is all just one color. You don't have any space in your lives. And, and, and in those instances, there are bigger decisions to be made. And this can be especially helpful to contend with as, as we move towards the holidays. The time of year where, where loneliness is greatest and hospitality is most necessary. Or let's get even more specific. Coming soon in 2024 on the second Sunday of the month, we'll be gathering for neighborhood church. So color code your calendars every second Sunday and commit to this one important thing of, of communal hospitality. And yes, for you cynics like me, organizing your calendar is, it's, it is, I have to say, it is a deeply spiritual practice. I always say, the devil's in the details, but so is Jesus. And Jesus is far better at organizing the details of our lives. So one, we act like someone's coming over. Two, we attend to are one thing. And three, this is really important, allow the church in. It's one thing to go to church. It's another thing to commit to one another and become the church. The practice of, of hospitality, listen, it begins with us. We are a people in this world who uniquely we meet every single week. We're drawn together by this reliable cadence of Christ-centered community. 
Our, our rhythms, they, they afford us the opportunity to develop in substance, to grow deeper in our love for Jesus and for one another. We, we have the potential to produce something even more valuable than that miso or barrel-aged soy sauce when we commit to one another through gathering in our neighborhoods. We become one of, of life's greatest gifts, getting better with time, capable of being shared in an instant, the moment that we open our doors, we become the very definition of what it means to practice spiritual hospitality. And the knock-on effects that transform our interactions, they transform them on Monday and Tuesday and throughout the week. Those will be incalculable. Because as we practice hospitality in the context of something like neighborhood church, those skills, they'll be directly transferable to the people that we encounter in our everyday lives. So commit to the people in your local church community. Allow the church in. Before we close, I need to add one more thing. Accept Jesus' hospitality. And I can't help but highlight that Jesus himself is the well-prepared field. And he doesn't offer just the edges of what he's prepared to the poor and the foreigner, those who are in need of him, those being you and I. He offers everything he has to give his entire life, even to his very last breath on the cross. And there are some of you within the sound of my voice who need to know that the life-giving substance of what Jesus has prepared for you is yours to receive in an instant. Today, he's calling you to receive his hospitality. You've done nothing to earn it. He gives it freely. The greatest gift of all. And if, that, if that's you, would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for the example that you set. To be a space of love and grace and kindness. So thoughtful. So beautifully prepared for us. And there are those who you know, who you see. And to them you're saying, welcome. Come on in. The door is open. And to that, we're saying yes. And so I thank you for those who are saying yes to you right now in this moment. We're so grateful for what you prepare for us and how you teach us to do the same for those around us in our communities. Would you teach us how to be hospitable like you? This world that desperately needs to know what it means to be invited, welcomed in, into a space that is thoughtfully, carefully, beautifully prepared to demonstrate your love. We thank you for today. We love you, Jesus. Amen. 
Hey, wait, wait, before you go, three things. First, consider becoming one of Cornerstone Fellowship's financial partners. Uh, your donations will ensure that you'll be able to continue enjoying helpful and hopefully life-changing messages like the one you just watched. And then number two, please share the link to this message with anyone who you know needs it or will be blessed by it or by posting the link to your own personal social media platforms, all of them. And finally, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and turn on the bell so you'll be alerted whenever we post more content. Thanks for watching.